Welcome to episode 83 of the Missing Pillar of Health podcast. So great to have you here. Today's conversation is a great one, and I feel like I say that a lot, but the more I do interviews, the more wowed I am at the amazing humans that are out there. This one is with Jenna Hua, the CEO, and Joe Rochester, the Chief Scientific Officer of Million Marker. And this is a company that is allowing us to more easily test our body burden. During the prep for this episode and then after we did the interview, they said that they were so excited to be able to talk the science because so many people just want to know what products to use. My friends, the science, we aren't going to become toxicologists or chemists, but understanding at a very superficial level, at least, the science behind body burden and toxins is so important when it comes to being able to make meaningful change in our homes. Because if we don't understand how important this is, if we don't know to our core that this matters, then it's going to be a lot harder to make change. And I talk about why this matters in so many different lenses on the show, from environment to social justice to human health. And this episode specifically was intended to talk about human health, but we covered so many different bases. It was such a rich conversation. So we talk about how body burden testing works, some of the benefits, but also the limitations of testing for toxins in your body. I asked why there is debate in the world of toxicology about whether small doses matter or not. We talk about the toxins million marker tests for and why and what people can then do with that information. Honestly, we covered so much ground. Even if you have no interest in testing yourself for toxins, this is a must-listen episode. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Missing Pillar of Health podcast, the show that tackles the often misunderstood and underestimated topics related to toxins and their impact on our health and well-being. I'm your host, environmental engineer, mom of two, and founder of Green at Home, Emma Roman. My mission is to help you reduce toxins in your life without fear, judgment, or shame, so you can be more informed and empowered to take action on issues that matter to your health. The research is clear that toxic chemicals found in the products we use, food we eat, water we drink, and air we breathe are contributing to the rise of chronic illness, allergies, infertility, autoimmune disease, and more. The good news is you can reduce your exposure without having to drastically change your lifestyle, and I'm here to show you how. As Margaret Mead said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. I believe addressing toxins is a critical step towards creating healthier and happier families, communities, and ultimately a better planet. And that starts right here, right now. Let's dive into today's show. Hello, Jenna and Joe. Welcome to the show. I'm excited to have you here. Thank you so much for having us. 
Before we get into the conversation, I would love it if each of you could introduce yourselves a little bit, what your roles are at Million Marker. Let's kick it off with Jenna and why you started Million Marker. Thank you, Emma. My name is Jenna. I'm the founder and CEO of Million Marker. I started Million Marker for two reasons. One, professional reasons. I was running into a wall in my research after my postdoc. I, I felt like nobody's reading my papers. And, and we have no data when it comes to environmental toxins or environmental exposures. So there's, I think there's a need to create a database so we can study it to push the science forward and understand how these exposures are really impacting us, what's their mixture effect, all these things. So that prompted me to start the company. Simultaneously, I was having a lot of fertility struggles myself. And when I went to the doctors asking for a environmental toxin test, because I studied this, I know they impact fertility. But when I went to the doctor, there was no such test available. So I was very bothered by that, that I think this is something that Everyone should know about their body burden and do something about it. Yet, you know, we can only test our genetics and many other things and you can't change your genes, but yet there's no environmental testing available. So that prompted me to start Million Marker. Then I met Joe. I love it. What were you studying just for context? I studied nutrition for undergrad. Then I became a dietitian. Then I went back to school to study environmental health sciences. So mainly on environmental epidemiology. Then my postdoc was on chronic disease prevention. Okay. Wow. So very uh, wide gambit of, of health related issues there. And so you met Joe and then you came on board. Can you tell us a little bit about you, Joe? Sure. So I am also came about this in a little bit of roundabout way. I was really interested in birds as an undergrad. So I studied birds. I like wildlife, all that stuff. And during that time, I started to work with a professor that was looking, and this was the late 90s, so this was kind of right right around when people were getting their eyes open to what some of these environmental chemicals could do. So I studied with a professor who was looking at the effects of estrogens on birds and estrogenic chemicals on birds. So from there, I really got into these hormone-disrupting chemicals and how all these man-made chemicals can affect hormones in wildlife and obviously in people as well. So I, that's kind of where I got my start. I did my postdoc looking at the effects of some of these chemicals on the brains, uh, that reproductive brain, we call it. And then after that, I worked with Theo Coburn, who was one of the founders of this field in the you know early 90s. We did a lot of looking at the effects on humans as well. So that's kind of where I roundaboutly came from birds to, to humans, but these chemicals affect everybody, all organisms. So it's all one big pot. <laughs> and Theo's organization was the Endocrine Exchange. Yeah, the TEDx, they call it, the Endocrine Disruption Exchange. And uh, she passed away a few years ago and that organization dissolved. But what we're trying to do at Million Marker is pretty much carry on that legacy and doing a lot of the work that she and her team were doing. And a lot of our people came from that that organization, actually. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah, it's, so. I have her book on my desk, actually, Our Stolen Future. It's one that I haven't cracked open yet, but it's next on my next on my reading list. Okay. So can you tell us a bit about, well, let's kick off with, so you alluded to it in terms of you started Million Markers so that people could understand their body burden. So can you talk to us about how 
body burden testing works and maybe walk us through the million marker process? I think this how body testing, body burden testing works. It's uh, depending on what chemical we're testing, right? Body burden, just like the burden of chemicals, toxins inside of your body. And this comes down to whether you're testing for persistent chemical or transient chemicals. So I first started out, this is sort of the first question to ask is, okay, what are we testing? What can we test? And then what are we testing? So what can we test today? Depending on the chemical for persistent chemical, you can't actually test it. Unfortunately, these, these testings are only available at CDC. It's not readily available for public. For persistent chemicals, if you think about persistent chemical, they just have really long half-life. They're living in your body for a long time. Like today, if we test someone's body with DDT, which is a persistent chemical, even though it spanned like 20, 30 years ago, but you will still find that in people's body. So this is a persistent chemical and it's usually can be tested through intravenous blood. And then for transient chemical, transient chemicals are usually metabolized through your urine. It also means it rapidly change. So you can simply pee in a cup and then get tested and then you'll be able to see your transient chemical exposures. So transient chemical, because they change, usually the exposures are capturing between 24 to 48 hours, your prior exposure. So when I first started, Again, like if you think about having making a direct to consumer test, that's easy for people to do. If you test for persistent chemicals, people will have to go to a phlebotomist. You can't really ship that blood and that makes it really hard. And the other, the more important thing is for persistent chemicals, you, it's very hard to change that. You can't control the DDT exposure, say your parents had or your grandparents had, you know, 30 years ago that still shows up in your body or whatever you had. So it's very hard to change. Uh, versus transient chemicals, you can actually do something about it readily, reduce that exposure. And by selecting urine as a biomatrix, it's also a lot easier for people just to simply pee in a cup and then be able to send it. So this is sort of what we narrowed down to, okay, we think like these transient chemicals are really important because there's not much we can do about persistent chemicals. So let's do something about transient chemical, at least reduce this part of the body burden. And it's easy to pee in a cup and then send it. So this is how we do it. And so if you're doing your testing and, and it's showing the chemicals that were introduced to your body in the last 24 to 48 hours, how do you know if those are actually a problem or not? Or if it was just, you know, something that was quick in and out? Is there a way that you determine whether something is actually building up kind of long term. Because I know, you know, I talk about phthalates have a short half-life in our body, for example, but all of us test for them regularly or would test for them regularly because we're exposed so often. So there's kind of two competing issues, right? So one of the things about these transient chemicals that we test for is they're in personal products. A lot of them, they're in like day-to-day products that we use. And people tend to, our creatures of habit. So if we test your urine and it was 24 hours or 48 hours, that's a pretty good snapshot of your life. And because it's in personal products, this is something people are using every day. We do an exposure journal, and that's an option on one of our services. So you can actually go through with one of our representatives and look at each product you're using, your lifestyle, your diet, all these things that are probably pretty the same throughout your week and kind of pinpoint where those chemicals might be coming from. So again, like you said, they're not really building up because you're you're constantly 
getting them out. But if they're always in your body, that's not good. So, and then you test the population and 90% of them all have these chemicals in their body, which means they're constantly being exposed. But there are ways to reduce that exposure in your life. So you're not just passively being exposed to them. You can make those changes. And when you're testing for chemicals, are you breaking down the big classes like phthalates have lots of different versions of them? Do you test for individual phthalates and then report on that? And how do you select which chemicals are being tested for? Because I imagine the more you test for, the more expensive it is. So there's a balance, I'm guessing, but maybe you can talk through that. That's a, that's a really good question. That's so actually what we spend quite a bit time to consolidating this panel. When we first started, we were working with a lab that we were testing for BPA and phthalates. That phthalates panel is quite comprehensive, included 13, just 13 phthalate metabolites, that alone. We were also testing for BPA. But again, like when it comes to these hormone disrupting chemicals in everyday product, it's not just phthalates and BPA, right? It's also parabens, it's oxybenzones and pesticides and, you know, PAHs. There are many of them. So we were thinking, again, as you said, like, the more you test, the more expensive it gets. And then when you also have to run separate panels for different chemicals, it also becomes really expensive. Accessibility is important, right? So, so we end up having to consolidate a panel and we picked BPA, BPA alternatives. We testing for BPS, BPF. Okay. I was going to ask if other bisphenols were in there too. Right. Yeah. Right. Because it's like really important. And as you, if you, you see the national biomonitoring trends, you can actually see BPA is dropping. However, BPS and BPF are increasing. So these are really important ones to be included in the panel because these are the ones that people get exposed day, day in and day out. For phthalates, we narrowed down to five phthalate metabolite because we, because we started with like 13, we can kind of see that what are the major metabolites that are showing up in people's body. So that's how we picked the phthalates, five of the phthalates metabolites. The five of the phthalate also included two low molecular weight phthalates usually occur in personal care products and also three high molecular weight phthalates that usually in takeout containers, plastics. We test for four parabens, all of them, and also uh, oxybenzone, benzophenol 3, benzophenol 1. And those are common in sunscreen. Yes, that's common in sunscreens. Yeah. And what kind of, I don't know if you can speak to this, but what kind of trends are you seeing in the testing that you're doing and the types of products that are most likely contributing to higher levels of concerning chemicals in people's bodies? Personal care product is definitely number one. Also for people with higher bisphenol exposures, canned drinks, canned food and canned drinks are still, other than receipt, canned drinks, we, we have seen a ton. If people actually consistently drinking that canned drink, that carbonated water across the board, their, their BPA, BPS, BPF are consistently high. Hmm. And what is showing up from personal care products? Fragrance still, like, you know, even though there is a trend for clean beauty that, you know, people are labeling phthalates free, paraben free. But when people are not aware, they still use, you know, regular shampoo, not looking out for that fragrance. You can clearly see there's a, a linkage between people's phthalates shampoo or conditioner personal care product use and their phthalates exposure. Paraben is an interesting one, though. Paraben, we also see a lot of people, even for really, really conscious people who are, you know, already practicing a really clean 
healthy lifestyle. What we have seen is paraben occurs a lot in over-the-counter creams. So many people use hydrocortisol cream for their rash or for eczema. But that's like a one thing, this over-the-counter cream is something that we have not been able to find anything super clean. Also across the board, all of them had some amount of paraben in them. Hmm. Interesting. I have an episode that talks about eczema for some other options that folks can check out if that's something that you're looking for. When it comes to phthalates and personal care products, I have seen a lot of the debate and how the phthalates used in personal care products are not as harmful as the phthalates used in plastics, for example. Are you seeing that that the phthalates that maybe are hidden in fragrance that aren't disclosed on the label, you're still seeing them show up though? Yes. And also sometimes because we also see phthalates showing up other than personal care product, you can also see in vitamin or medication capsules. There is a, a new study who, that just got published talking about phthalates exposure and even children's cancer risk. And a lot of that exposures are from medication. And then we see even sometimes when product label is not, obviously it's not labeled like that capsule is made of phthalates, but it does show up in people's body when you can, you can do the deduction, figure out, okay, that's where the, the source of the phthalates. Yeah, and these refer tend to be medications that are timed released. Mm-hmm. So I actually spoke to one of the researchers in that study and he suggested if you have an option, maybe talk to your doctor about this timed release medication. Maybe you can have the non-timed release type, especially for a child, if that's an option. I mean, you obviously have to weigh, you know, the person's yes. medical needs and stuff. But interesting. I had never heard of that before. That is interesting. Something to keep an eye on. Yeah, I think it's kind of a dilemma, right? Like a way. We know these things are bad, but consistently they have been used in medications, they use in medical supplies. But then when it comes to, you know, if you actually have a life-threatening disease that needs that slow release and that's in your medication, we can't tell people to stop taking that medication because of phthalate exposure. And same as studies have shown that, you know, in ICU, when they plug people into all these tubes and a lot of the medical supplies are made of phthalates and sometimes they have to warm up that IV bag, then give it to the patient. They have been shown that higher exposure to phthalates is actually hindering the healing of the patients and recovering speed of the patient and more complications. So again, like that's also where it's like, how do we, one, how do we know like the, the medical supplies have all these phthalates in them and what can we replace that to, you know, speed up like not putting more burden on a healing patient that's that's in the ICU. Yeah, I think that's a really great systemic question and something that we need to address. And the fact that we now know this is, I think, the first step in hopefully pushing the industry to make a change in how they're making things without dealing with the whole regrettable substitution issue like we talked about with BPA and and BPS and BPF. But yeah, from an individual perspective, this goes back to the focus on what you can control so that what you can't control doesn't have as much of an impact necessarily, or you're, you're reducing your body burden as much as you possibly can so that your body is better equipped to cope with the things that you're not going to control. And I don't think you should be refusing medical treatment (laughs) just because there are phthalates in tubing. But it is something that I think we need to address. And some people like will say, 
oh, this is just too overwhelming, too scary, because it's it, if it's in all the medical equipment that I can't avoid, then why should we bother with it? But we can't just stick our head in the sand about everything, right? And so, yes, while you as an individual might not be able to control it, it's so important that we know. And I think if we even just ask the question of medical professionals, they may start thinking about it differently. And then the, the kind of chain of communication can happen down the way. But if we ignore it, then change won't happen at all. So I just want to throw in that context a little bit. Yeah, I mean, there's been lots of incidences where toxic chemicals have been removed from products because of this. Wedding gasoline is one of the one of the ones I can think of. Yes. So there can be big changes that happen and we're aware of them. Absolutely. There's also the whole mixture effect, right? Like this is a how, why we call it body burden. You know, you already have a certain amount of burden. You definitely don't want to add it more. And these chemicals actually can work in synergistic effect. If you get exposed to one versus multiple or multiple at high levels, they potentially cause way more damage. There was also a new study just got released, published a few months ago, looking at mother exposure and how it relates to link to children's language delay and IQ, neurodevelopment. And yes. again, that study actually looked at, you know, BPA, phthalates and PFAS exposures, mixture exposures. So you definitely don't want any extra that you're being exposed to, you know, day in, day out. And I think these mixture studies are going to be increasingly important because so much of the regulations to date have just been looking at them in isolation, right? And their impact on like mice models and then and then translating it into our products. So I, I saw that study and I think, you know, those are the sorts of things that we need to help push the conversation forward because a lot of people just say, oh, well, it's not indicative of how we're using these ingredients in this one skincare product, but we can't keep looking at it like that isolated problem. I'm curious from a toxicologist perspective and toxicology perspective, there are, I've alluded to that kind of, I don't want to say the other side because I don't think things are black and white and I don't think we need to be combat combative about everything, but not everybody is on board with the idea that we need to be limiting the amounts of chemicals that are in very low concentrations in our products. And there are lots of toxicologists that say things are studied and the small amounts aren't fine. I'm curious. So we, you know, you talked about the synergistic effect, but does that still apply for these really low dose issues? And why do you think there's such a divide in the field? Yeah, so there's a there's a lot to unpack with this question. Yeah, no, it's no, very no. complicated. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I'll, I'll hopefully touch on a few of those issues you brought up. So, so just to take a step back, like our bodies have all these mechanisms in them to get rid of toxic chemicals. They've got specific receptors on every single cell that will identify a toxic chemical and be able to signal to try to get rid of those things, protect the body, and DNA repair, and all these different things that our body does. However, we've evolved the millions of years that we've evolved all of these mechanisms there are for chemicals that were naturally found in the environment so plant chemicals basically perhaps burning things wood smoke things like that when we start very recently in the past hundred years or so making all these brand new chemicals that our body has never seen before it can't really keep up with detoxifying in that way 
So that's kind of one issue. These are brand new chemicals. Uh, bodies can't really deal with them very well. And we're seeing those effects in our bodies. The other thing is that these chemicals that we've, we've been talking about, these hormone disrupting chemicals, work at very, very, very tiny effects. I think they say it's a drop in 20 Olympic-sized swimming pools or something can have an effect on your on your body. And that's because the way the hormones work in our bodies, they're at tiny, tiny, tiny effects. So your brain has a few cells that makes a hormone that then signals your body and eventually perhaps makes estrogen or, or you know, regulates estrogenic responses or things like that. So when we start seeing these chemicals, and the reason they mimic estrogen is they actually look like estrogen. If you look at the structure of these chemicals, they're similar to estrogen and they the receptors on the cells actually recognize them as estrogen. So they dock to them and they create these estrogenic effects or testosterone or, or any other hormone that we're looking at. These tiny amounts do have a big effect. And this can even be worse when they're exposed to a fetus or a baby because hormones is what regulates all our systems, not just the reproductive system, but our brain, our circular, everything is, is controlled. How we grow is controlled by hormones. So it is true that these chemicals, small amounts can cause big effects, especially when they're given in certain windows of development. I would say the reason certain toxicologists think there's no problem, there's a couple of reasons. One is there's a lot of industry money going into showing that these chemicals aren't, aren't, aren't harmful, but they are safe, but it's fine. It's a little bit fine. Don't worry. That's big business, big money, especially from the petroleum industry, because that's where most of these chemicals are made out of these petroleum products. And also there's just some pretty antiquated ways of thinking about toxicology, that if you give a rat a chemical and it doesn't kill it, but we know that's not true because that rat that's given as a baby, maybe it develops diabetes or obesity as an adult, maybe it develops cancer way down the line in ways that we haven't even seen. So there's just really old ways of testing for toxic chemicals that we need to update when we talk about regulation as well. Joe actually wrote a really cool blog unpacking the traditional toxicology testing today we're still using to regulate these chemicals because the outcome, as she mentioned at the end, is like cancer or death. But there's like such a long way before you get to like a cancer or death. What about your quality of life, right? And also when toxicology, traditional toxicologists are looking at these chemicals for testing, they test in such high amount, the amount that's like not equivalent to how much human is getting exposed. You know, you literally get exposed to BPA or phthalates in like nanograms. That's how much we're measuring in your urine. Yet the testing is testing in grams. Like that's like a hundred thousand times more. So which we completely miss this window of exposure and also the amount that we actually getting exposed. And a lot of these chemicals follow these non-monotonic response curve that a lot of impact actually happens between, you know, zero to one versus like zero to 50, which is crazy that, that our current model is not really looking at the actual human exposures. And then the lastly, I also want to add on is we can't possibly expose humans and then follow them to see, you know, what's the impact because it would just be unethical. And this is, this is, I think this is also a, a kind of a dilemma in this where scientists are really urging for these precautionary principles that, you know, if we see there's an association, there's linkage between exposure to these chemicals and bad health outcome, then we should not use them instead of like, Hey, 
going the roundabout way of saying that, okay, the dose is not high enough. And then it's, you just get exposed a little bit that you shouldn't worry about the, the impact. And that's just not correct. That shouldn't, that is not the precautionary principle that we should follow to protect human health. And that precautionary principle is adopted better in Europe, I would say, in terms of regulations than North America. It's not perfect there either, but that's why, you know, a lot of people say, well, why does Europe ban so many more chemicals than we do? And I think that's largely why they're operating under the exact same science we are. They're just adopting the precautionary principle, whereas we are not. (laughs) We have a long way to go, I would say. There's kind of a tenet in science that if you make the mistake of saying there's an effect when there's no effect, that's a really bad mistake to make, which I think is true when you're looking at just regular scientific principles. But when you're talking about human health, I'd rather people make the mistake of maybe saying something's bad when it's not, rather than saying something is okay for you and it isn't. So I think that, again, comes from this kind of old way of looking at science and toxicology rather than saying, well, let's look at the big picture. It's human health. We want to protect Babies. <laughs> so um, I'm not going to put a chemical on them that is okay. Maybe it's fine. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, it's a lot easier to bring a product to market later if you realize that, oh, we were wrong. This ingredient actually is fine. Bring it to market than to have a product in the market for decades and then say, whoops, <laughs> like we're seeing with PFOS chemicals and Teflon and waterproof coatings and all that jazz. We have so many examples through history of where that process is not working. And, you know, the definition of stupidity is doing the same thing again and again, expecting a different result. I feel like that's kind of the cycle that we are in right now. We felt ultimately like consumers shouldn't really bear the burden, right? Yeah. Before a product put out, it should be fairly tested. And then we consumers should not be worried about this. And then also not not everybody is trained as chemists to read these product labels, which is crazy, right? But I, but then considering the glacier speed of government policy and the, the, the conflict of interest from industry, we just need to have this collective action to push them to make a better choice and then use better ingredients in products and do better toxicology testing. Yep. I completely agree. And I, I talk about that a lot of the, the push pull of how much is the burden on the consumer versus government and industry. And I think there is both, but we actually have the power to drive change a lot faster with our dollar votes, really, at the end of the day. And so that's, you know, part of a big mission with this podcast and the work that I do is to help empower people to make decisions, to make informed choices and to push back and ask questions. Because again, without these conversations, change won't happen. And I think Having the data like you guys provide just adds another layer into that. So can you talk a little bit about what happens when someone gets a million marker test and and goes through the process? So they pee in a cup and, and ship it back. And then what? Yeah, so people can order a test kit online if you want complete that exposure journal, because that exposure journal allowing us to to audit your lifestyle and all the products that you're using to pinpoint where your exposures are coming from, then you can, yeah, pee in a cup, send it back to us. We get it analyzed. We let you know your level, how it compared to our existing users 
and how they compare to the national average, which is using the CDC data. We also let you know, yes, after that, that lifestyle audit and product audit, what are the problematic areas that you should work on to reduce your exposures? In a product audit, we also not only audit the chemicals that we're testing, any other problematic ingredients that we've seen in the literature that have either have animal studies linking to adverse health impact or human studies will let you know. So next time you buy a product, swap out for a better product. Cool. So that we talked about the testing for certain phthalates, bisphenols, parabens. Are there other things that are looked at from your tests as well? Just oxybenzone adding oh, to that okay. list. So it's those those kind of four groupings, we'll say. Yes, yes. Okay. We're hoping to add more in the future. People are interested in their pesticide exposure. That's one area. Another one would be the polyaromatic hydrocarbons for air quality exposure. So those two we're hoping to add in the near future. Okay. We do analyze your product ingredients. And that's something we in depth have a huge long list of ingredients that we don't recommend. And that I don't know if you already mentioned that, Jenna. <laughs> just just but, briefly. So a lot yeah. of those are kind of, as Joe mentioned before, are petroleum based ingredients. That's like toxic to aquatic life. It can't be good for humans. And then many of them are also have the much, much higher chance of contamination of carcinogens and heavy metals and, and other things. So for those, we recommend people to opt out those ingredients. And then there are also ingredients as itself, it's not very harmful. However, when it's combined with other harmful ones, it actually increases the penetration of other ones. So we also let people know, hey, this ingredient is okay, but when it compare with other things that, that you're using, it's actually enhancing the absorption of the harmful ones. That's so helpful. And I I think the petroleum-based ingredients conversation is important as well. And and one thing that I say is that, you know, even if the little bit in the product hasn't been shown to contribute to human health issues, you know, going back to the petroleum industry, having such sway in regulations, but also we need to be moving away from that as a product in our daily lives in general. And yes, skincare ingredients, you know, are not entirely fueling the oil and gas industry, but it's still a byproduct and it is still contributing to the economic success of that industry and outweighing benefits of, you know, renewable energy, for example. And so I think I think it's not just as simple as, like you said, and the propylene glycol, for example, can increase penetration. So it's all of these little things that might not show up on the hormone disruption list. But I love that you take into account all of these different factors and help people, again, make these informed decisions so that they can move forward without necessarily needing to become a chemist or a toxicologist themselves. Also, as you as you mentioned before, right, we don't want people to be super overwhelmed because then they just don't make a change. We want people to start small and then we have all these tip sheets and then like top priorities for people. Just like first of all, it's like getting get rid of as much plastic as possible. It's like, you know, we have this such complicated relationship with with plastic, but we always recommend people to to reduce as much as possible. Not just good for your health, for your future children's health, but also good for the environments. Yeah, so many different layers. 
Thank you for creating this service and product. I think it is really exciting and offers a lot of promise for people. Before we wrap up, a question that I'm sure people might have is what happens to people's urine once it gets tested? And do you have kind of safeguards for privacy and all that stuff just for people who might feel nervous about shipping parts of their body fluids? Oh, yes. We <laughs> we take privacy very seriously. We don't want to be the data owner. We want to be data steward. We actually implement two type of consents in the process. One consent is for information exchange for us to analyze your sample. That's a mandatory consent that that's just allowing to analyze your, your sample and then send you the report. We double blind the lab. The lab actually don't receive any personal information. They literally just see the code of your sample. They don't know who you are. So that's blinded after. And then we have the second consent, which is asking people to consent, allowing us to keep your leftover sample for future product development or research. Because I think this is really important for research that in the future, as we expand our panel, if we if we do get to that point, then we analyze your sample, we will let you know. Kind of like a 23ME model. So we will keep giving you this feedback. The second consent, obviously, it's optional. So if you opt in for the second consent, obviously, we keep your sample. If you don't opt in for your second, the second consent, we discard your sample six weeks after the analysis of your results, just in case, hey, if the, the sample will have any issues or if you have any questions, we, if we need to reanalyze your sample, we give a six week window to make sure that we still, we don't need it anymore. And then the report that you get back, is that online? Right now, we deliver the reports through uh, our mobile app. You can access the reports through the mobile app. If you want, we can also send you a PDF. Easy peasy. I like it. Where can people go to learn more? People can check us out on our website, www.millionmarker.com. We're also pretty active on social media. We're on Instagram or on Twitter. So follow us. And we also have a newsletter that we send out once a month that allowing people to know the latest research on EDCs and what we're doing and any news on us, product recommendations. If you're interested, sign up for our newsletter as well. Great. I will pop all of those relevant links into the show notes for you to check out. Thank you both so much for being here. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. It was really fun. Wait, before you go, I have a quick favor to ask. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts and like what you've heard, please take a moment to hit subscribe and leave a five-star rating and a written review. You can do it right from the app. It takes just a sec and really helps me to be able to continue to share this important information with more people. Plus, you might just get a shout out on a future episode. Thanks so much and bye for now.